is there are still parts of of Northridge that are still not recovered completely in the sense of being back to normal, right? Back to whole, if you will, uh, that happened then. So, you know, utilizing the idea of project management um, in emergency management, I think would speed up that recovery process, to be honest with you. In a world filled with chaos and a myriad of risks, there is opportunity. You're listening to Riding the Wave, project management for emergency managers where we discuss how we adapt and rise above those rolling waves of hazards and threats we face and rise to the top. And now your host, the president of Pinnacle Performance Management, Andrew Boyarski. I have as my guest today, Todd DeVoe, who is an emergency management educator and the host of EM Weekly, Business Continuity Today, Natural Disaster and Emergency Management Expos Prepare, Respond, Recover Show, and is also the producer of the EM Students Show. Uh, Todd, I want to thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Well, we've talked a little bit before today, and I'm excited about uh, getting into this because I, I think you you have a lot of experience and having you know produced a lot of these shows have a lot of different vantage points. And we're going to talk about aspects of project management and emergency management. You know, much of project management is centered around managing expectations, expectations of stakeholders, constituents, and the like. And it's very similar to emergency management. We have to manage the expectations of people that we're serving or stakeholders that we're working with. What examples have you experienced in your work in these domains, these two two connected domains, and how have you managed them? Well, first, I think, Emergency management education um, would do well to have project management um, as as one of its core uh, fundamental um, pieces of, of education. So, you know, instead of having it as a uh, you know an elective class, for instance, I would say it should be recommended or should be a, a required course to have because realistically, at the end of the day, emergency managers are very similar to project management. Um, the difference is, is it's normally not a one project and, and you leave. Uh, it's just an ongoing project. So if you're going to use a Gantt chart, for instance, that'd be like the largest Gantt chart you'd ever see in your entire life. Um, you know, some of the projects that we're managing, say, for instance, um, into that, in a recovery, so a disaster recovery, for instance, um, I mean, it's last years, right? And yesterday was the anniversary of the Northridge earthquake in uh, in California, and also the also the anniversary of the Kobe earthquake in Japan, uh, a year apart, ninety four for one and ninety five uh, for the Japanese one. And so, my, the reason why I bring this up is there are still parts of of, of Northridge that are still not recovered completely in the sense of being back to normal, right? Back to whole, if you will, uh, that happened then. So, you know, utilizing the idea of project management um, in emergency management, I think would speed up that recovery process, to be honest with you. Um, So, you know, and again, let's take a look at the the Whittier Neuros earthquake of 1987. You know, if you go to Uptown Whittier, um, there are still holes there where buildings used to be. 
uh, that haven't been rebuilt. Now, whether or not the city decided they want to rebuild there and you're utilizing, uh, uh, you know, different zoning processes for what would have gone there or, you know, building codes and whatnot. Um, you know, maybe you want to keep those holes there for other reasons for like pocket parks or things like that. That's different than, than not having them being able to be rebuilt again. But I think a lot of it was insurance monies and things like this. And the owner of the land couldn't rebuild because of, of their financial constraints. And it really, you can see that, that hole uh, makes the city, it makes the uptown area of Whittier, a little blighted, if you will. So using project management um, as an emergency management tool, I, I think is, is very important today. So I think you bring up an important point in talking in, in, in the timeline for recovery, because recovery is a really, I think it's, it's one of the fraught areas of emergency management. You know, we could talk about prevention, mitigation, preparedness, response. But when it comes to recovery, that is one of the areas that you know, it, it's easily easy to get mired in, in a way. One of the tensions that exists is this between building back quickly and building back effectively and in a resilient manner long-term mm -hmm. and, and, and doing it in an efficient way and one that's agreed to. We see this in, and, and I, we should mention just for folks who are listening in, you're based in, in Orange County in Southern California. I'm in the New York area. You know, these are two areas that are impacted by two predominant types of hazards, Southern California, of course, California as a whole, to wildfire and earthquake, Northeast to hurricane storms, winter storms, things like that. This, this tension that exists, the role of emergency management is changing in light of that. From what we would call the lights and sirens type of response, you know, from what we typically see of first responders, right, police, fire, EMS, to one of mitigation, preparation, coordination. Uh, what do you see the role of project management playing in that, uh, in that change? Well, as you mentioned, we do response really well in this nation, right? Across the board. Uh, you know, you see fire trucks and police cars and uh, ambulances, um, uh, Public works vehicles. I I I, I want to add those into into our response. I think we forget about them. Sure. You know, um, sanitation uh, again, um, adding that into debris removal um, depends on where you, what part of the country that you're in. In the Northeast, sanitation is a, normally a department of the city that you're living in. Mm -hmm. um, those we do that well, right? I mean. Let's talk about sanitation for a second. Today it happens to be trash day here at my house. And, you know, I just stick some stuff into a can and I put the can on the side of the road and it disappears. Right. And it goes away. And there's some, there's a bunch of people working that back end to make sure that, that sanitation goes to the right dump, uh, to the, or to the recycle bins, to whatever it has to be done. There's a group of people that are working and, and, and you go, why Todd, why are you talking about sanitation, uh, on, a, on, on this podcast? Because that's a project management issue too. Right. If you really want to see something that has to be done every single day, right, across the country are, are three things. Utilities, right? Include it's electrical stuff, right? Your gas, your sewage, <laughs> right? Which I guess you could call it a utility as well, but you never want to see I, I've actually gone to the Fountain Valley um sewage treatment plant for a tour and you'd think, why is this important for emergency management? Well, wait till you see sewage back up. 
right? But now I say back up, you mean back it up into your homes and things like sure. that, right? Right. And and your other sanitation issues. Now we think about the New York City sanitation strike uh, that happened. I don't know how many years ago now. It's probably twenty years ago now. But um, I mean, the trash is piling up everywhere, and then you have rats and other infestations of animals, and so your public health issue gets associated with all that kind of stuff, right? So we do that well. We do that every day, right? We do that every day. But when it comes to the large-scale disaster, right, we see the helicopters come out and we see people being plucked off the roofs. I mean, you look at Hurricane Sandy the, the, or Superstorm Sandy and you have the, the waves splashing up and you have people going out and doing some really great rescues and stuff. But the recovery side of it, which is really where project management should be playing a huge role, um, tends to be, I don't say forgotten, uh, it's definitely not forgotten, but it's definitely something that the media doesn't cover. Um, you, you know, a week or two after the storms, you don't hear about them anymore, you know. Um, but let's, let's take a look at some of the recovery failures, if you will. I don't say failures. I want to I, I want to caveat that word. When I say failures, it means like we, we just we have not done our best work there. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think some of its constraints, whether it's like it's economic constraints, whether it's the local government constraints, things like this. Right. Now, Hurricane Katrina, the, the Lower Ninth Ward, right? Now, I'm going to put this out there. This is not a federal problem, right? It's a local government problem. It's a state. Now, whether it's funding problem for the federal government, that's a different story, right? Because that's where the federal government comes into, to be able to give money to the state and to the local government to fix these issues, right? Zoning is a local problem, Right? Zoning is going to be your either your county depends or or your cities right and fixing those problems that are in there whether it's rebuilding schools which is a school district issue right whether it's rebuilding the homes that are in there or funding that issue local allowing the red tape to be cut so you can go through and and rebuild and I want to get into when I say cutting the red tape I don't mean lowering the standards of building right of reduce in fact i would say you might want to increase your building codes right but what you want to do is you want to cut things like fees right you want to cut the time that it takes for have you ever tried to build anything andrew like a like like a house or anything like that not a house per se but or an addition uh, but uh yeah you know renovations uh your typical household renovations and things of that nature sure right so i mean to get an inspector to come out they take a look at it. They find something wrong with it. They go, okay, we're going to be back in two more weeks, but then they, now your contractor can't do nothing for those two weeks. until you're, That's what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. That's, what I'm ta- that's the type of red tape sure. I'm talking about, right? Making it so you can have more inspectors on where they're contracting them out, however that works during this time of recovery. And you put, you put a, a timeline on it, right? You say, this is day one of recovery starts today. And in a year and a half, we want to have you know, this done. So you're, if you're building in that time period, right, then you want to go ahead and, and have those, uh, those issues fixed and have additional staff on with your contracting out building inspectors and stuff like this. These are things that we don't do. This is why I say we do cut. That's why I say we fail at recovery because we try to do it. I say we, the government, right. We try to do it on a, on a, a, a with the budget that we have today, right. We don't, put emergency funds into it. We don't do emergency hires to bring in uh, experienced building inspectors and things like this. And so then these, these buildings um, start to sit there 
uh, people don't have the money to do it or the time to do it or whatever. And then you start seeing these pockets and you take the lower ninth ward and could in New Orleans, for instance, and you see stuff that just not ha has not moved. Right. And then you start seeing, you know, again, blight, you know, um, you see mass exodus of those neighborhoods and, it, and then it becomes, we get into a little bit later here on the idea of retreat, but you know, the, it, it becomes just a, um, a, a mess. Right. And so I see project management playing the role in being able to keep people to those timelines. Right. Because without having somebody on top of it. Oh yeah. By the way, days move on. Right. The politicians move on to something else. The emergency manager has to hold, you know, 10,000 different meetings they have to go to still and, and redoing plans and drills and exercises. The fire department goes back to normal. Police department goes back to normal. EMS goes back to normal. You know, your, your social services, they have their normal book of business they're doing. And so all of that recovery kind of gets forgotten, right? Mm -hmm. And I think if you have somebody with a strong public, uh, project management background and put them on that recovery, um, I think then those things don't slip through the cracks and you have a more timely, robust recovery process. That's a, that's a good point. And I, I think, you know, one example that comes to mind, if I might mention, is the Build It Back program that we had in New York City after Sandy, which had good intentions. But I think to your point, though, and that is that, you know, recovery is a long-term process. And I think no matter how you cut it, there are certain approvals that need to happen, certain regulatory matters that need to be dealt with. And, you know, you're talking about, let's say, as an example, I'm sure, you know, Southern California, the Los Angeles area has very similar, let's say, depth and extent of regulatory, you know, building regulations and inspections that have to happen, right? Same that you find in, in New York City, you know, local to state, and so forth. And it's, it's, you've got to work within that. And I think that's what the Build It Back program was designed to do. But even there, you know, there are many stories of issues around, you know, trying to square, you know, certain regu building regulations with the practical matter of someone needing to rebuild their home and, and how that was going to get done. I, I want to touch upon something that you mentioned in discussing, and that is investment and mitigation. So, you know, and, and how do we tackle those problems, you know, beforehand? So, you know, we know from decades ago in the, in the um, project impact that was instituted by James Lee Witt during the Clinton administration uh, in FEMA, that there was a major return on investment for mitigation projects. And we know from more recent research that investment in mitigation projects is a six to one return every one dollar it's invested will return six dollars in, in 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 you know prevention and you know costs that we would have down the road. And, but it, how do you make the case on a local basis when these are huge costs and the multiples of millions, if not billions, of dollars in certain communities when there are more immediate needs that they that you know municipalities jurisdictions need to pay for? Well. This is a multi-pronged answer to this, but I, I want to start with some of the legislation that, that went through uh, that Brock Long uh, fought for. And um, one of them, that I think the biggest one, is the Damage Assessment Remediation and Restoration Program known as DARP, D-A-R-R-P. And basically, there, there are 
it's like I'm looking for the number. I can't find it right now, but it's like eight point five billion dollars sitting there in 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 DARP funding that um um that jurisdictions are eligible for, and and it goes back to your natural hazards planning, right? And so there's grants that are available right now um, for cities and jurisdictions um, to do natural hazard disaster planning and they'll pay for that. Right. And then upon, once you have that plan approved by FEMA, then you're eligible for other funding, including the DARP money, um, which will pay for your restorations, right? It's, it's in the name of the legislation. Right. And it, it amazes me that it sits unused, you know, and when I had Brock Long on, on Ian Weekly, we, we discussed that, right, uh, of, of getting into those fundings, the funding ability. And, you know, the, the requirements aren't super high. There's no, it's not the bar isn't super high where you have to go through this. I mean, you just have to get a plan written, right? And the funding is available to make that plan to get written, and, and you get in there. Um, and, and from that, then your city is eligible for, for additional funding for mitigation, Right, whether it's infrastructure. Now, now, mind you, what we're talking about here isn't building your individual homes, right? You're you're talking about governmental infrastructure, roadways, flood mitigation issues, um, you know, seawalls, if you will, if you live along, you know, the coast for tsunami issues or or erosion issues. Those things are are part of that, right? Now, you know, obviously you, you say, well, that's great. That doesn't help mom and pop have their house, house rebuilt. Absolutely. But what it does is it helps them reduce their insurance footprint, right? So if you have a good mitigation plan set or, or not plan, but mitigation efforts into, say, the seawall, for instance, right? That means a person who's living in a flood zone, that the flood zone is now reduced, Right. And so that means the insurance goes down for them and it makes it more affordable for them to be able to fix things. It makes it more affordable for the insurance company to be able to insure them. So if something happens, right. And then going into this, and, and I, it sounds like I'm digressing, but I'm not. One of the things that we do poorly as well in this mitigation aspect of things is we have nationwide, our financial literacy is, is terrible. Right. And, that financial literacy includes having insurance, homeowners insurance, flood insurance, earthquake insurance, fire insurance, these things, right? And so you'll hear people that go, oh, I just paid off my lost, my, my last home payment, right? And they have like that whole mortgage burning party you know they've put it on youtube and everybody's like yay and they're like oh now i can get rid of like my, my insurance is that i don't have to keep anymore because of because of it, my mortgage is covered and you're like whoa whoa let's let's stop and let's 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 roll that back a minute here kids you know um you shouldn't get rid of your insurance just because you're not required to mm-hmm. right now now we don't have mandates right we don't have insurance mandates from the federal government or from local government on, on homeowners insurance. Right. Um, that's normally comes along with your loan, those mandates. 
So, you know, unlike car insurance, in most states, you have to have car insurance, at least liability insurance, right? So if you hit somebody else, you're okay. We don't have those issues necessarily here with homeowners insurance. Um, you know, whether we should or not, that's a different story. But the problem is, is that people will weigh that and say, hey, I don't want to pay this insurance because of I want to be able to use that money to go to Vegas or whatever, right? You know, so that's what I'm talking about. Our financial literacy needs to go higher as well. So people have the proper insurance and understand why that insurance is important. And the other thing is, well, we're talking about insurance, especially here in California with the fire insurance, is we do need to have a little bit of, well, you know, insurance regulation in the sense of you, you, you can't allow insurance companies to take super risky insurance and then go insolvent when they have to pay out. And then it puts the burden back on the state again. So, but that's a whole nother, it's a whole nother show there, Andrew. So I, I think we're getting to the next question, which I wanted to address, which is what is your opinion on dealing with the impacts of climate change? And, and more particularly, do you think we need to retreat and relocate as some might say, or do we need to build greater resilience in areas that are vulnerable to the key risk factors? So for example, flood and fire. Climate change. I, I want to go on, uh, and, and I've said this before, but I'll go on the record here as well. I, whether or not you believe climate change is created by human caused or not, it's irrelevant to what we're talking about here, right? We're, we're not talking about fixing climate change, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what we're talking about here is, is what the response to and what the, how do we mitigate it and how do we deal with the human factors that are associated with climate change? Well, I think we have to do a little bit of both, right? As far as like the retreat. Um, and we have to do a little bit about it, more about building robustness and resilience. And, and what I mean by that is that there are certain areas that no matter what, like there was a, in Illinois, for instance, um, there was a city or town that was flooded three times in one season, right? And they made the decision saying, hey, you know, we need to move up 100, physically move the city 100 feet higher and a little bit further in from, from the river. And then, you know, there are people that had family farms on the, on that land for, for many, many years. Right. And it doesn't mean you can't farm it. You know, you're going to have crop loss and stuff like this, but I mean, that's, it just means that do you really want to have homes that are going to be that impacted? Is your downtown going to be impacted every time that there's a flood? Because it, it comes to a point to where you go, Hey, there's too many, you know, your flood insurance we talked about insolvency. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't hold that company responsible for leaving after they've had been had to pay out three times in a row, right? And so it's like in car insurance. If you have too many accidents, they're going to tell you we're going to increase your premiums or we're not going to insure you, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, same thing has to happen here. But the thing is, is that, you know, maybe in some cases you, you move. Now, you also take a look at maybe we take a look at building um uh, building codes. Uh, you take Japan, for instance, during the triple disaster. The majority of the damage wasn't done by the earthquake. Matter of fact, very little damage. I don't, and I, I don't want to. I might be misspeaking. I don't think there were any deaths attributed to the earthquake itself, to the the actual shaking. There may have been. I, I don't. I don't recall. I have to look at the information again. If there were, very very few. And then, but the tsunami comes and, and, and really does the damage, right? And 
if you take a look at uh, Daniel Ulrich's book, uh, The Black Wave, he talks about in there that there were markers that were put in by the Japanese residents hundreds of years ago from the last big tsunami. And it says, do not build lower than this thing or whatever, this rock in, in, the, in the middle of the, on, on the hillside. Don't build, don't build lower than this. We just had a really bad disaster come through, and I want to put this monument here for the next generation so they will know not to build below it. They did, right? They built below it. And oddly enough, the damage that occurred to the cities of the, during the tsunami were all, was, was all occurred below that marker of the tsunami that happened hundreds of years ago. Mm-hmm. So, there has to be a little bit of, I don't know if it's retreating is the word, right? Because I think what we've done is we've expanded. So like, for instance, in Florida and then along the Gulf Coast and along the, the southeast, um, we're building in where mangroves were. Uh, mm-hmm. We're building on barrier islands, like, you know, uh, things like this. We're building huge communities on barrier islands, which were naturally set up to I don't know, set up is the word, but occurred to break those storms, right? They're basically storm breaks and, and we're building in there. Um, and in fact, in Houston, for instance, where a lot of the flooding occurred on the map, it says reservoir on it. Right. And they were all confused why so much water went into those areas where it's a, it's a, it's a reservoir that was created. And somebody gave them approval. I'm going to blame the government on this, right? To approve to build into these reservoirs. And we're doing it here in California. We're building in these urban wildlife interfaces, the WUI. And these are places that have burnt just historically, will burn again. And then, you know, we're building these huge homes um, in there. Now, yeah, we're on a, we're, we're, we're on a, on a crunch here for, for housing crisis, if you will, but the homes that they're building over there aren't ones that would really fix the housing crisis. These are multi-million dollar homes. And, and, but yet we're, we're surprised when these fires come through and we see these like large numbers again, you know, um, there's a movement right now. And, and I understand what they're saying. And I don't know if I agree with hundred percent, but they're basically saying there is no such thing as a natural disaster all disasters are human caused disasters. Mm-hmm. Sure. And, and, and that being said, lightning strikes do happen and fires happen, you know, in the middle of the woods. Mm-hmm. Right. But the human portion of the, the, that's just a natural occurrence, if you will, the disaster comes when it's impacted by humans. Right. So like we had the earthquake on July 4th, a couple of years ago, and it happened in the desert and um, China Lake is, was the epicenter and um, very, very few damages there's damage on the Navy base and there was damage done to some homes around the area. Um, but it was like a 7.5 earthquake. I felt that all the way down here in Orange County. Um, if that was in LA, we'd still be talking about that disaster today, you know? So, so, so I don't know if I don't want to call it retreating, but what I want to say is I think we need to be smart about where we built. I think when we start talking about the built environment, we need to be smarter of where we decide to build because like everybody wants to have that beautiful condominium on the beach, right? Who doesn't, 
you know, you walk down the stairs or, 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 you know, or the single family home for that matter, you know, you walk down the stairs and there you are, you know, like in Miami, right. You're, you're on the beach and you're, you're able to partake in the, in the, uh, the beautiful ocean or the Gulf. Right. Um, but when those, when those storms come, those tropical storms come or those tornado hurricanes come, a lot of damage occurs because we build in those areas. So I, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know if the return retreat would be what I would, I would really contribute to it, but I think we have to be smarter about where we decide to build. Does that make sense? Sure, it does. Well, I, you know, the the term that I'm using is one that, uh, you know, so you you mentioned, you know, that uh, you know, disasters are not are are basically human constructs, right? We 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 decide to live in certain areas that are prone to certain hazards, right? And the impacts from them. And, you know, so, you know, we, we go back, if you, you gave the example of, you know, the Florida Peninsula, the Florida Peninsula, Peninsula has historically has been sort of mangrove and marshland and swampland, mm-hmm. uh, was not built up. It was human beings that went and drained it and dredged it and, you know, created areas that uh, they could build in. I mean, you know, you, you look at the history of some of those areas that malaria was, was sort of prevalent in those in that part of the country because it was a sort of swampland. And the same is true like in Southern California, as you mentioned, with the wildland urban interface and the risks that are posed there. Quarantelli was the one who, you know, talked about so you know the sociology of disasters. And more uh, recently Kathleen Tierney has been, you know, one who's who's done a lot of research and I'd say brought uh, refreshed that level of sociological depth and, and looking at these at how disasters uh, play out. You to your point though, it's interesting that sort of, so that striking that balance between you know what we do to not build in areas that are you know pl- are prone to you know the impacts of hazards versus the money that we spend in you know creating the resilience that we we have because the the, the re- it's it's a it seems like a common topic that comes out. Governor Cuomo talked about after Sandy, we're going to have to cede to those areas that are mother nature, so to speak. But at the same time, it's hard when you've got, you know, a real estate and, you know, a housing development lobby that wants to build in those areas, right? Because they're desirable, you know, for folks to want to live in. Uh, you know, do, do you remember who you've gone down to uh, Dune Road on Long Island? It's, it's all the way at the at the end near, near uh, Montauk, I believe. Um, but I anyway, there's, there's there's a beautiful there's this, this and I'll pull it up for you. But there's this road, Dune Road. It's all these crazy kind of homes. It's very uh, very wealthy um, area, obviously. And um, it seems like every every time a storm came in, like one of those homes were you know washed out, and the road was was. And finally, this is back in the '80s. And then finally, New York State said, we're not going to come. You guys can live out there. We're not going to tell you you can't build, but we're, we're no longer going to come re- pull out the, you know, rescue. We're not going to come in and, and take the sand off the, off the, off the road. It's going to now be a private road, and you guys are going to have to deal with it. You guys want to stay out there, and insurance companies didn't want to cover. So it was just, but it was like that thing. It's like, hey, we're not going to tell you no, but we're not going to help you out. Mm-hmm. You know, and I and I think we can get to the point where we say that as well. We're like, hey, hey, you person who's flooded out three times, you know, we're not going to tell you you got to move, but we're no longer going to cover your losses. You know, um, and and I and I think that's a, then it becomes an economic decision, right? 
you know, mm-hmm. do you sure. are you able to afford to, to live in an area that floods out and damages occur and you're going to have to self-insure, you know? Yeah. If you have the money to be able to rebuild every single time, then so be it. Do do it, you know. Now I know we can get into the whole, you know, is that equitable and all that kind of stuff. But I mean, if you have the resources, you know, I mean, I mean, you can you can do it. And and you know, if you don't have the resources, and 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 then so so be it, you know, because it comes to a point to where how often how often should the taxpayer mm-hmm. at the end of the day bail out people and and at the end of the day if you think about those that are living in some of these areas they're very wealthy people right it's not the it's 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 not the the poor people it's not the lower ninth ward right we're talking about people who have multi-millions of dollars that are building multi-million dollar homes in these areas that are getting burnt out and then like malibu for instance right you know the, the Woolsey fire comes burns some burns some homes out you know malibu is traditionally burned you want to you want to build there? Is it my responsibility as a taxpayer to pay for you know Barbara Streisand's mansion? You know Barbara Streisand is a very rich person, right? Is it is it the responsibility of California taxpayers to pay for her home that got burnt down, knowing that she lived in an area that is uh, now I'm sure she's insured and whatnot. I'm I'm picking on Barbara Streisand. If you guys like Barbara Streisand, I'm sure she's a very very okay right. Don't worry, she's not she's not struggling tomorrow. I may expect a call from Barbara Streisand after this. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm telling you, I, I'm sure she's okay. I'm sure she's not struggling to put food on her table. Who right, Todd Devoe. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm in trouble. <laughs> but but you know, I just think about her because I mean, like she was one of the ones that had uh, got her house burnt. You know, during during the Woolsey fire. You know, um, you, you know, same thing with uh, um. In Santa Barbara, when uh, Oprah Winfrey, right, her house mm-hmm. got impacted. Sure. You know, I mean, I'm just using these examples of very wealthy people sure. whose homes were impacted. You know, uh, you know, is it the responsibility of the state to pay them out every single time something happens to them? And that's what we're talking about here. At the end of the day, it's an economic mm-hmm. decision, right? Sure. You know, it, it, you know, and when we're talking about the recovery, and we talk about, you know, without having proper insurance and stuff like this, the state the government, you, the taxpayer is going to have to subsidize these things. So it's, you know, what, what is the state willing to do? And again, I guarantee that Oprah Winfrey has insurance on her home and she's okay. So everybody who's, you know, I, I, I would, I should say guarantee this because I don't know this personally, but I would, I'm a betting man, I suppose in this case, which I normally don't do. Uh, I would put money on it. I put $20 on the fact that Oprah Winfrey is okay. If I have the opportunity, I will find out. <laughs> <laughs> And I'll let you know, um, you know, or perhaps, but, or perhaps you will. Right. I will do this. I'll, I'll, let's let's talk about this on a serious note, right? When I say serious, the people that that don't have the money to be able to withstand mm-hmm. these things. Sure. And um, there is a buyback program that the federal government went through, uh, specifically in Louisiana, and they went to people and said, "Hey, you live in this area that's going to be inundated again. It's cheaper for us to pay you out, right?" And people said, "No." Right. They, this, again, this is, this was my grandfather's 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 house. I, I, you know, my, you know, my Nana was born here or whatever, you know? And, um, you know, so they don't want to leave the family farm, you know? Um, 
and then that's a, that's a serious decision then you have to make because now we're coming over here saying, Hey, we'll pay you out for this, whatever the market value is. Right. I don't think that they're trying to be, you know, they're not, it's, it's not like they're trying to move them out to build high rises or anything mm-hmm. like that. They're, they really want the mangrove to grow back and they really want these people to be able to be in a safe area. And, you know, there is economic decision to be made. Can you buy the same type of home with the amount of money someplace else? Like, you know, those are, those are personal decisions that have to be made. But at the end of the day, you know, um, again, are we looking at, and these are, when I say these homes are, you know, $300,000 or whatever, maybe less, right? Mm-hmm. You know, um, at the end of the day, are, are we, again, taxpayers, are we willing to, to subsidize someone living in that location? Because that's, that's what we're doing, right? Yep. You know, we're... And if, we, and if we are, if we vote this and people are okay with it, and then that's okay. That's, that's what we do. We decide this as a society of who we're going to take care of in that sense, right? You know, but, you know, and, and once that decision is made, that's, that's the direction that we go. But, you know, we have to take a look at it now, clinically speaking, right? And this is sometimes where, where, where I get in trouble with some of my students, right? You know, you take the emotion out of it and you clinically think, you think economically, you think through science, you think through these things and saying, does this make sense to us? You know, um, behind me, I don't know if you can see my, my bookshelf or not, but I have those books that you specifically just talked about, you know, um, you know, so I teach a class called Social Impacts of Disasters, you know, so mm-hmm. I, this is something that's really on top of my mind. You know, um, you know, what, what is the social contract that we have created um, with those that are living in those flood areas, you know, and living in the wooies, you know, uh, well, we could talk deeply about Paradise, California, mm-hmm. and should people rebuild there? 65% of the city got burnt down. Mm-hmm. You know, um, there were some serious known problems. Um, when I say that, like, infrastructure problems not problems with the people uh seriously known infrastructure problems up there um Mm -hmm. deferred maintenance on issues things like this you know we can have a laundry list on that you know um that put these people at risk you know so then a question goes do we as as a society do we subsidize the rebuilding of the city of people who live in paradise you know and it's a tough question because Emotionally, you say yes, right? You know, I mean, Andrew's home deserves to be rebuilt, you know, and, and you know, he has emotional connections to that place there. But how many, how many times can we do that before it becomes economically not viable? Well, yeah. to your point, you may know the statistic that 1% of the claims that FEMA has paid out represent 30% of the costs of the National Flood Insurance Program, which means that over time historically a lot of these have uh, been repeat claims you know mm-hmm. that, that, that they filed and you know uh, as you mentioned they have this you know buyback program where they will basically buy you out and choose to relocate you to an area where it's less prone to flooding you know for the national flood insurance program but it's uh, still a question right for a community you know socially whether there are certain areas they're going to want to rebuild in. I mean, New Orleans is, is one of those classic mm-hmm. examples, the Lower Ninth Ward. You, know, you mentioned Paradise, California. So uh, there's much for us to continue to mine, and I'd love to have you again on the show at some point in the future. Uh, Todd, it's been a real pleasure talking with you and, and um, discussing these 
questions. Absolutely. And if anybody would like to, to get in touch with me, um, you can email me at devote, D-E-V-O-E-T, at uci.edu. That's my, uh, where I teach. And uh, you're more than welcome to email me there and I'll answer any questions that I, I can for you. I will include uh, that email in the uh, notes for the show, as well as a link to Todd's podcast. I've been speaking with Todd DeVoe, who is an emergency management educator and a host of EM Weekly, as many other podcasts. Uh, it's been, again, a pleasure speaking with you, Todd. My pleasure. You may find out more information at www.pinnacleperformancemanagement.com. At Riding the Wave, we like to get your feedback and you may contact me directly at my email address, andrew at pinnacleperformancemanagement.com. Thanks for listening, and come back soon for our next podcast. You've been listening to Riding the Wave, hosted by Andrew Boyarski, president of Pinnacle Performance Management and clinical associate professor in emergency and project management at NYU and John Jay College. All thoughts are his own.